The Energy Gang is brought to you by Aurora Solar. Aurora is the leader in solar design and sales software with over 5 million projects designed in the platform to date. And guess what? They're hiring across a lot of different roles, including customer success, marketing, sales, operations, and more. If you want to expand your career in solar tech, check out the open roles and apply to join Aurora. Voted one of the best places to work in 2021. Go to aurorasolar.com. And if you need some additional reading, check out C-Power's latest book, Demand Side Energy Management in the Time of COVID. C-Power is our sponsor, and they are also offering this resource to people who are managing energy spend and strategy at corporations. It's authored by 19 C-Power experts with a combined total of more than 300 years of energy experience. It's a must-have resource for any commercial and industrial organization striving to optimize energy use in 2021. Visit the C-Power away slash 2021 to download this new sea power book this is the energy gang weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy i'm stephen lacy is the u.s already halfway to a zero emissions grid 15 years ago it looked like heat trapping gases from power plants were only going up Today, they're half of what was projected. This week, why the path to net zero may surprise us once again. Then, America's climate image on the world stage is in tatters. What will it take for the Biden team to stitch it back together before negotiations this fall? Finally, a ton of specific policy ideas that can help us expand solar to everyone who wants it. Danelle, you're back. You like us. Or at least you don't actively dislike us. I'm, I won't characterize my like or dislike of you all but i am back and i'm thrilled to be here super excited to um rejoin you guys and you you just like jumped on this call from a briefing with members of congress it's been a busy week for you i have learned all about the realities of uh moving legislation through the house and the senate it's it's quite complicated but there's a lot of young staffers on the hill who are doing the lord's work and um, I've been learning a lot from them. It's been great. Catherine knows all about this stuff. Yeah, but I learned from Schoolhouse Rock. I'm just a bill on Capitol Hill. <laughs> Somehow, Catherine, you're an optimist, though. I don't understand it. <laughs> I know. I've been doing this for a long time, and I, I don't know. Maybe that. Maybe that's right. Maybe I am an optimist. Danelle Baird is the CEO and founder of Block Power. We're so excited to have you back. Catherine Hamilton is the chair and co-founder of 38 North Solutions. She's with us as always. Hi, Catherine. Hey, it's Earth Week, y'all. Yeah, does that mean anything to to both of you? I mean, look, to us and our audience, we're constantly thinking about this topic. So does this week feel any different to you? Oh, yeah, there's a lot going on this week. And my mother sent an article about nature to all of her grandchildren and copied me. So, (laughs) you know, I know my mom cares. (laughs) In New York City, there's, there's a ton of Earth Week events across the government and kind of climate and startup ecosystem, they take it quite seriously. And so it's it's always like the best week to hear kind of like policy and startup R&D, innovation, and kind of rub elbows. It's kind of like the conference of all conference weeks um, for those of us in the climate space in New York City. So it's, it's always a big deal every year. Let's start by looking backward. A lot happened in the year 2005. It was the year of Hurricane Katrina, a disaster that thrust race and climate change into the American consciousness. But on the lighter side, it was also the year that Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston got divorced. Lance Armstrong won his sixth Tour de France title. 
YouTube was created, Tom Cruise jumped for joy on Oprah's couch, and Carrie Underwood won American Idol. Energy obsessives could be forgiven for missing some of those stories, though, because they were distracted by the latest modeling from the Energy Information Administration. Hard to think about anything else, right? That year, the EIA put out a projection. CO2 emissions from power plants would steadily rise every year thanks to the incumbency of coal and gas. But fast forward to 2020, American Idol is no longer that relevant, and neither are EIA's projections. In fact, emissions last year were 50% lower than expected in 2005, and a new report from Lawrence Berkeley National Lab calls it halfway to zero, meaning we're already halfway to a zero-carbon grid. Now, we've devoted countless minutes on this show talking about why EIA projections are often wrong and hopelessly outdated, but still, the difference between what was expected back in 2005 and what played out is incredible. So we're going to talk about that and what it means going forward. Are we really halfway to zero? Catherine, what are the researchers at Lawrence Berkeley Lab saying here? Yeah, so I reached out to Ryan Weiser, who did this report, and he said the genesis of it was the sort of philosophical tennis match he was having in his brain of, hey, I'm an optimist, we can do this, we can lower CO2 versus the counter narrative of, oh my gosh, CO2 is embedded in every single thing in our economy, we'll never be able to do it, it's not possible. And so what he did was he said, all right, well, let me go back, let me go back to what they were saying 15 years ago, and see what happened, and what were the predictions, and where are we really? So he found out a couple of big things. One is that we're really bad at predicting the future. It wasn't just EIA. He said there was a DOE wind program analysis that he was involved in that was way off. There were five other forecasts he looked at too. And he said, human beings are just really bad at forecasting the future. So that was one big finding. The second big finding, like you said, is that we are in a much better place than we thought we would be in a number of ways. I saw some reporting on the report and people thought it was kind of misleading because we've long known that EIA projections specifically have been extremely conservative and based on the policy baked in at that time frame and not what could happen in the future. Um, What do you make of that criticism that like it's kind of an unfair comparison he's making here? Well, I think that is true that EIA doesn't build in policy. And I think that one of the big findings is that policy and technological advancement are crucial to lowering our emissions. So, you know, if you don't build in policy and what could potentially happen with policy, you're missing a big chunk of the driver for any emission reduction. But as he found out, there were a lot of other predictions that were really wrong, too. One of the criticisms that we constantly got at the Sierra Club and Sierra Club Foundation, where I'm on the board, um, not internally, but from external critiques is like hey like it's really the shift to natural gas away from coal that shift has precipitated a lot of the reductions how do how do we start to value and measure that and think about the lessons learned as we start to solve a new cohort of tactical challenges yeah so ryan was talking about how you know there was some low-hanging fruit switching from coal to gas was a really good way to lower emissions, right? That was a good way. Um, And you could say, oh, we've picked all the low hanging fruit and there's nothing left. But Ryan actually believes that the tree has grown more branches. (laughs) So we didn't have really low cost wind and solar back then 15 years ago. 
Now we do. The price is so low. We now have many more technologies on the demand side and much more, many more tools to get this done. It's not easy, as Donnell as Donnell knows, and you know Ryan doesn't believe that it's going to be easy, but he says we actually do have the tools to do it because we have grown more branches. I, I think this is an important point. So, two factors here that I want to discuss. One is efficiency, the efficiency of appliances and our gadgets. And despite the fact that we're using more gadgets, electricity demand actually flatlined. And it was expected to go up steadily every year, every year, but it didn't. And that's because technology has just gotten a lot better, even though we're using more of it. And the second piece about natural gas, I think is really important for understanding the current moment of what can happen. Because the natural gas boom that we saw was the result of Department of Energy programs that allowed us to fund early fracking efforts and that caused an explosion of commercial fracking operations. Like the government allowed that to happen by investing in those technologies. And today we are investing in the next generation of electrification companies in all sorts of different climate tech technologies. And like over the next decade and a half, as we're looking out to 2030, I think we'll see something similar that we saw in fracking. We're certainly seeing it on the renewable side, but like we'll see it elsewhere as well. And so even though a lot of people don't like the idea that, that, that it was natural gas that helped us drop emissions, I think that technology and government investment story is really powerful and important for thinking through what's going to happen next. Yeah, we just have to keep in mind that the next 50%, we got to get rid of that gas stuff too. <laughs> so we have a lot of work to do. But some of the things that I thought were really important that we did find out, um, in addition to the fact that demand was did not increase thanks to technology, but it costs didn't go up. And that's really important. Um, and that so so electricity bills did not significantly increase jobs increased a lot and also healthcare costs went down they were expected to be 419 billion and they were only 34 billion so it was 90% less than what was predicted and they projected in 2005 that by now there would be 38,000 annual premature deaths and now there are only 3,000 so we have made significant progress and the issue is now do we have the willpower to make sure we have the tools it's it's do we have the willpower um, to put those policies in place that will really and the financial um, ability, as Donnell probably also knows, to be able to get to that next 50 percent? I concur. I am concerned about there is this legacy infrastructure now from this particular idea of, you know, we've unleashed gas fossil gas as a bridge fuel, but there's a ton of infrastructure that we unleashed. And that infrastructure now has a set of stakeholders and a set of constituencies that have to be included in our new political calculus. And so when Catherine, again, because I'm a tactician and I'm not smart enough to be a strategist like like Catherine and you, Stephen, um, or Jigger, I think tactically there's constituencies that are tied to gas infrastructure, including many of America's building trade and construction unions who've built these pipelines and want to continue to do so. And so when we think about the political will that we need, um, there's going to have to be 
I'm going to use the word divestment, not just financially, but also politically um, from from some of this infrastructure. But I do agree that we can do it. And I do agree, and I'm very hopeful that the narrative of uh, the research and development dollars that we, we use to unleash this shale gas boom can be duplicated in a decarbonization boom, because that's what we need. I don't want to be naive about what it takes to shatter those narratives, but the reason why this report is important to me is because we saw almost 30% more jobs in the energy industry than expected in 2005 because of the renewable energy boom. So even though there were massive coal layoffs, they were way more than offset by the boom in renewable energy uh, construction jobs and maintenance jobs. Um, We, again, as Catherine said, prices did not go up. Uh, Prices went up a little bit, but demand flatlined or went down and energy efficiency savings offset that. That's exactly what everyone has been has been claiming would would happen. And so it's just yet more proof that the narrative that this is going to be too expensive, it's not going to work, it's going to bring down our grid, it's going to put all of our people out of work is completely bogus. And we should find power in that. Um, This current political environment is so difficult a report like this is not going to change that, but we should find strength in what these numbers continue to show. Amen. Yeah, it's interesting because the next 50%, it, it, there is there is an issue of infrastructure, as Donnell raised. And you know, you could say, oh, well, maybe we'll use we'll underground transmission, HVDC, some transmission in, you know, in a in a pipeline sort of format, or do um 5G you know, networks in that sort of, um, in those rights of way and, and in the same kind of infrastructure that a pipeline would have. But, but otherwise, like the business model is completely changing. It's changing from moving fuel from one place to another to having something digitized that, that has very localized assets engaging in real time. And it's just, it's turning the entire business model of the gas industry and also the electric industry um, on its head in a way that um, we're going to really have to grapple with this seriously to make sure that we can get to that 50%. And we do have the technology to do it. I, I, I absolutely agree with that. Um, but the issue is, are we willing to shift business models? I have a question. The number of jobs that have been created is more than projected, but the quality and wages of those jobs are not quite commensurate with the jobs in the coal industry. So what are what's the thinking around what we can do um, as we move forward into this next phase in order to ensure that the quality of jobs as well as the number of jobs um, is where we need it to be? Because politically and tactically, that's the challenge that we got to figure out. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And the Biden administration is spending a lot of time thinking about that, right? They're trying to make sure these are union jobs, that they're good paying jobs. And so they're putting a lot of thinking into like, how do we make sure that happens? And there's certain things like transmission, anything that has to do with a grid is going to be union based usually. But a lot of other things like manufacturing, like how do you make sure that a lot of those are really good paying jobs and, and that they're brought back to the United States. So I feel like the administration is doing a lot of thinking about that. And that is something that I think both sides of the aisle might be able to agree on. So you talked to Ryan Weiser and he said, it wasn't just EIA analysis. It's a whole range of government analyses that showed that we were actually 
being conservative, even among some of the laboratories that focus on clean technologies, we're being conservative. So the pathway forward is going to be difficult, but possible. Um, if we want to, you know, get to a, a, a 90% carbon-free grid, then we have to take the best year in renewable energy deployment, double it, and then maintain that pace for like a decade. So it's going to be an extraordinary lift. How does Ryan view that given this historical trend? Yeah. So one of the things he commented on, and I can't say what was in his mind on that question, but I, he did remark that this was only a 15-year period that all this happened in, which is pretty remarkable. So let's think about what do we have to do in the next 15 years? And we really, really do have to accelerate based on all the climate numbers. And those predictions have actually been true. Um, and so we do have to accelerate. And I think what he was showing was that it's not necessarily linear, like we do this at, at a certain pace, but there are going to be step changes, where you you may be kind of going upward a certain amount every year, and then all of a sudden, something happens and you and it's exponential. Um, I think that'll happen with EVs. I think that'll happen with a number of things, um, as long as we have the right mechanisms in place for them to do that. We're going to hit the pause button here to talk about our supporters of the show. Thanks to Aurora Solar for helping bring you the energy gang. Did you know that solar is expected to top 100 gigawatts this year? Well, you probably knew it because you hear us talk about it all the time. But if you want to be a part of that growth and expand your career in solar tech, well, you should check out the winning team at Aurora Solar. Aurora Solar's career page is filled with a bunch of new positions featuring dozens of fully remote roles they have open across the company. You'll be joining an organization that was voted a best place to work in 2021 while building the digital platform that powers the future of the solar industry, an industry that's expected to quadruple in 10 years. Learn more at aurorasolar.com slash energygang. And while you're at it, make sure to bone up on what's happening in energy markets on the demand side. Power's got this new book that you've heard us talk about. It's called Demand Side Energy Management in the Time of COVID. It takes a peek at eight of the biggest commercial industries in North America, revealing key energy management strategies that organizations executed during the wild year of this pandemic. The book breaks down the demand response and demand management programs available in five of the nation's open energy markets, as well as those offered by several of the largest electric utilities in deregulated markets. It's a must-have resource for anybody within a commercial and industrial organization optimizing energy use and spend in 2021. Visit the cpowerway slash 2021 to download this new Power book. America's allies sighed in relief when Donald Trump lost the presidential election. But that doesn't mean world leaders are ready to link hands and do trust falls and other team building exercises with Joe Biden. Trump's chaos created a sense that anything can change in the U.S. and one president's promises are another president's trash. Nowhere is this unease more apparent than in the world of climate diplomacy. Climate change has become a powerful force in geopolitics. Trump didn't care, of course. He made a sport of celebrating fossil fuels at international climate events. He walked away from the Paris climate deal without a thought. And now Biden wants to bring leaders together to prove that America is back. On Thursday, as part of Climate Week, he's convening a summit that will bring together 40 world leaders. And the goal is to declare America's reentry into the Paris Climate Agreement and announce a plan to cut emissions in half by 2030, while also asking other countries to increase their targets. Both are difficult 
The second one may be even harder. Uh, so what does the Biden White House need to do to regain America's influence on this issue? Catherine, what is the summit? What's Biden's goal? Yeah, this is a virtual global climate summit, and it is within the first 100 days of his administration. He said he would do it, and he's doing it. I think that's really important. I think when he was elected, a lot of folks who are involved in the climate negotiations globally, and I think most countries are, breathed a sigh of relief. They thought, okay, the U.S. is going to now be at the table again. And they're trying to prepare for Glasgow, which is in November. And Glasgow is a conference of parties, just like Paris was. And at Glasgow, they're, all of the countries are supposed to ratchet up their commitments. They're not binding, but honestly, the countries have put policies in place for the most part that really hold themselves to the fire on these commitments. It doesn't mean that they're doing it, but I'm just saying they do take these seriously. And so this is teeing everybody up for this. And I think it's really important for the administration to show that they're being really thoughtful about this and that they have a path forward to actually acting on all of the commitments that the U.S. had said that it would do and the reductions it said it would make that it lost some time on. Yeah, but nobody believes us, right? I mean, the, the 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 Biden team could come out and announce the most ambitious target of any country and people would kind of step back and say, uh, I don't know, they could change pretty quickly. That seems like a much deeper challenge than can be fixed in the first 100 days. Honestly, I think some of that rhetoric you're hearing from countries like China, because there is a lot of competition there. But I think the EU and others are really glad to have us back in a way that's positive. Although that's not stopping them from having like a thumb war as to like how much they're all going to commit to. So we expect that the president will announce commitments that are going to be more aligned with the EU now, and that the UK has already announced a 78% cut by 2035 from 1990 emissions. Danelle, what do you make of all this? Well, President Biden has committed us to a 50% reduction by 2035. Is that correct? They're going to announce by 2030, yeah. By 2030, not 2035. So so I think that's significant. And I, I think it's showing the right level of commitment and aggression to try to restore credibility in the, the eyes of our global partners. Um, I'm super excited about Glasgow. I'm going to go. Are you guys going to go? You're going to be there? No, November, though. There. November, it's going to be stinky there. Who cares? You've been stuck in your house for over a year. I know. What am I complaining <laughs> Are you about? really worried about that? <laughs> oh, in the weather brain. won't be good. <laughs> 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 well, hopefully there will be a generational pact um, that is hammered out there. I I mean, if you, if you follow some of the comments from elected officials in India where their position is like, look, we didn't cause climate change, right? Like we didn't drive the industrial revolution. Um, and so as I was reading this and thinking through this, it reminded me of, there's this Harvard professor named David Keith. He has a team at Harvard um, that's focused on geoengineering. And he has been testing geoengineering in the lab. And he has formed an alliance with leaders in Bangladesh, which is already experiencing terrible impacts from climate change today. And a lot of the leaders in Bangladesh are kind of like, look, climate change is already here. Rich countries caused it. We have a narrow window under which we can geoengineer the ozone by shooting 
different layers of particles into the atmosphere around the planet to reflect sunlight and cool the earth, which will buy us more time to actually decarbonize the global economy. And I know this is like Bond villain level stuff, but I tried to close my eyes and like put myself in the shoes of these kind of elected officials from Bangladesh and India who have a point in that they haven't caused the vast majority of climate change and they feel like they don't have enough resources. And so I think that they're very excited, as is the EU, that we're back in. But there's questions around, are we going to provide enough capital to help emerging economies? You know, as India has 200 million people, uh, middle class uh, people who are entering the middle class and are all going to want air conditioning. Okay, how do we get those folks on heat pumps? And what kind of cash is going to be available to close the gap between the cost of a heat pump and the cost of a window AC unit? That is that is one part of it. Yeah, I I can't imagine shooting things in the air. What could possibly go wrong? You talk to anybody who's lived through like <laughs> rabbits and rats in Australia, and uh, you get you get some sense of what could possibly go wrong with geoengineering. Um, yeah, you know, one of the things that the administration is doing because we have some work to do is that the U.S. had pledged in Paris two billion dollars toward this fund, the Green Climate Fund, to help emerging economies, and Trump blocked that funding. So we have that to make up, and then. Um, Biden's budget request also asked for $1.2 billion over two years for the Green Climate Fund, too. So that is a huge piece of it, is trying to help emerging economies come along and provide them some of the financial means to to get done what they need to do with technologies, like Donnell said, that shouldn't be about shooting things into the air, but should be getting people more comfortable homes and things that are really important to them. Yeah, boy, Donnell, you opened a big can of worms on that or a big can of sulfur or whatever. <laughs> whatever part don't of you're talking shoot about. it into the sky yeah. uh, i'd rather have the worms up in the sky than the sulfur e- e- from my personal opinion i mean geoengineering aside i know you had another point to make but i just want to comment on that i mean i i i think it's very true that a lot of emerging economies are saying hey we didn't create the problem and you have a responsibility to slash your emissions faster and to help fund our energy transition and that's been a part of these talks since the beginning of the talks, right? This is how they're structured. We're trying to create a fair way for countries to set targets. What was different under the Paris Agreement was that you had China and India come to the table and say, actually, we will set our own ambitious targets. And it's not quite commensurate with the with the problem, but it was the first time that they said, well, we're not just going to hang back. We're actually going to create our own you know, ambitious plans as part of this agreement. And I think that was historic. With that said, though, I think it's just as simple as other countries not trusting the U.S. And they're probably going to get together and forge new alliances and and you'll see countries try to step up in their targets. But like America just has a problem in that there's a lot of distrust over what our pathway actually is. And if our politics are this volatile, what does that mean for our long term commitments? Um, I think that's a problem. I, I, I think it's a huge problem. I think that's well said, Stephen. I, um, you know, my parents are immigrants, and so I, I talk to them about some of this stuff because they didn't grow up. Um, they grew up, you know, thinking about the United States as a global actor in a different way than I have as someone who was born here. And um, I talk with them a little bit uh, 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 about this issue, and I think Catherine made the point, well, you know, we we're supposed to create this emerging fund for emerging economies, and Trump blocked it. From the perspective of, you know, 
these emerging economies, they don't care who blocked it, right? I mean, it's you know, we know Trump did what he did, but the commitment was from the United States to you know capitalize this, and we're going to follow through on that. But it's it's a little bit late. Two thoughts to finish. One is skepticism, realism, and that is a 50% reduction in U.S. emissions by 2030 would require us to like zero out emissions in the electric sector and then reduce emissions by 30% in transportation and and, in other sectors. It's huge. And that that comes from Alex Gilbert, uh, an energy expert who um, put together a couple comments on it on, on Twitter. And basically it's you know, highly unrealistic in this political environment that we can meet that. So there's, you know, a bit of a credibility problem. Countries are going to step back and say like, okay, that's extremely ambitious. And I'm all about setting ambitious policy, right? Like you just have to put those targets in place now because that's what we need to do. But, uh, you know, you wouldn't blame countries for stepping back and saying, how are you going to do that again? Um, With that said, if there's a team of people who can put the plans in place to do it, it's the team that Biden is assembling right now. And we shouldn't discount the fact that we're actually having this conversation after the Trump years that we're talking about reconvening people around these ambitious targets. I I don't want to discount that. Yeah. And he has an incredible team. I mean, they all uh, are just super smart. They're they're um, they're working together very collegially. I feel like they're all on the same page. And um, you know, he's really he's really built the the internal infrastructure he needs to get this done. I think that I, I think I, I, I hope that that just as we feel encouraged um, by the the incredible team that Biden and Kamala Harris have assembled, that people around the world, regardless of whatever public position or commitments they feel they can or can't make over the next week or two. Um, that everyone feels encouraged by by the team that has been assembled and by the speed and ambition of the commitments that Biden is making. Let's turn to a specific set of domestic policies. Uh, we are, of course, in a renaissance of policy ideas around racial and economic justice. And in the wake of the Green New Deal, this is true in the climate space, where organizations are putting their weight behind ideas designed to slash carbon pollution, but also mend deep racial fissures and address the widening wealth gap. And as the Biden team looks to devote more money to these efforts, states and cities are also changing the way they ask for money to build infrastructure. A big coalition of groups just put together this week a detailed list of policies that could expand renewables and modernize the grid while directly benefiting the people who need it the most. It's one of the most comprehensive sets of policies that I've seen. And Catherine, you were involved with this effort in some way. Uh, what is it? Yeah, they released it this week, but it's been it's been going on for a little while. For a few months, we've been working on this. And it's a, it's a coalition made up and led by Earth Justice and the Coalition for Community Solar Access. So the Co- Coalition for Community Solar Access is mostly community solar private sector companies. They came together with Green Latinos, Solar United Neighbors, We Act for Environmental Justice, Grid Alternatives, NAACP, Appalachian Voices. Uh, LULAC, which is the League of United Latin American Citizens, the Local Solar for All, Hispanic Federation, Vote Solar, Chispa, LCV, and TULIP, which is um, a Native American group. And what they did was say, all right, we have a couple of huge challenges. (laughs) One is that the clean energy revolution is really pretty inaccessible for most Americans. And it's historically 
uh, locked out the underserved communities. And those could be communities of color, indigenous communities, rural, low-income communities. Then we also have another problem, which is climate change. And we need to you know, make sure that we meet those goals of 100% clean electricity by 2035. So how do we marry these two goals? How do we make sure that the need for equity plus the need for clean energy are pulled together in a way that one serves the other? It's an infrastructure problem, basically, right? And so what this group has said is like, there are really three things we have to focus on. One is empowering 30 million households, 15 million with low to moderate income to go solar. This has really been focused very much on solar. The second is, how do we make sure that the workforce and the businesses that are created from this um, also are able to come out of those underserved and communities of color? And the third piece is, how do we make sure that our grid is able to accept all of this change? So there's sort of three big tranches. And within each of these, uh, this group has really dug down and, and built what they call a roadmap to expand solar access for all. And this is all in the building back better to, to make sure that there are very specific ways to do this. You know, the White House and uh, the Biden administration has said in America, in the American job plan, we want this to have, we want to have 40% um, equity in everything. Well, how do you actually do this? And what this roadmap does is go program by program to say this is how you do it i i i thought it was exceptional work i thought that the leading thinkers in this space were brought together um some of them i've had the privilege of working closely with in new york like we act um but there's a lot of good thinking here and it's ambitious and it's really necessary um i i i personally um, and I guess corporately, that's not a word, but as, as in, in my role as a CEO, um, we've been pushing for community ownership policies, which if we can find ways for low income communities to own or cooperatively co-own shares of infrastructure projects, meaning as those projects gets financed into special purpose corporations or special purpose entities, that some amount, whether it's 3% or 5% or 10%, is owned by heads of households and low-income communities, and that there's a role in the governance of those infrastructure projects. I think that is also potentially going to help uh, with customer acquisition costs. It's going to help to increase trust. Um it's going to, of course, lead to job creation for low-income communities um, because if you're an owner and a director of a local infrastructure project, of course, you're going to figure out how to find ways to get um, people in your community who need work uh, to be employed in those projects. And so I think that what has been developed is amazing. I'm very glad that this kind of framework has been created for the Biden team to, 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 to work from, and I know they're taking it quite seriously. Um, the additional element that I would add is, you know, what's possible in terms of ownership of, of this uh, distributed and renewable infrastructure based on some of the models that there's precedent for when Franklin Delano Roosevelt rolled out the rural electrification co-ops. And, you know, there's great piece that NPR did about Curtis Wynn, the president of an African-American uh, co-op in, in rural North Carolina, where that community kind of owns and operates its own local electricity company, 
Um, I'd love to see people play around with those kinds of ideas also. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that this um, roadmap embraces that in a lot of ways, too, and really encourages much more investment on in those USDA rural electrification programs to make sure that, you know, community solar, those projects um, in which, you know, communities have their own investment in and their ownership of are really important. Another piece of that, Donnell, is that, you know, we've talked about this before, where, you know, the U.S. taxpayer is the landowner of a lot of U.S. land. <laughs> and, you know, making sure that, whether it's land that is um, on a you know federal property of any kind, whether it's a veteran affairs or a DOD, you know Department of Defense has just a ton of real estate that they could build on. Um, the General Service Administration, all of this land that we have out there, making sure that forty percent of the energy that we can develop on that is actually available to low income households. I think that's going to be really important because it's forcing us to think much more intentionally about how we use what we have that is actually supported by the American taxpayer anyway. And how do we give back to our communities? Yeah, I think that, I think that the community solar prioritization and emphasis in this framework is incredibly important um, for empowering low income communities and engaging them because obviously so many folks are renters um, and just don't have you know, the opportunity to even make decision around whether solar should be on their roof. And so, you know, creating a, an easy to access framework for folks to access community solar is probably one of the most important uh, equity and, you know, equity in clean energy policies that we can promote. And so I'm grateful to all of you for your work on this. I think it's fantastic. There's another piece in here related to tax credits. Um, historically, that's the way we fund clean energy is through the tax code and it can create a lot of inequities and it means that in general through the financing of uh, and use of tax credits it's mostly a handful of big investment banks that are financing these projects and you know that's been good for scale but not good for equity and spreading the benefits necessarily what are you trying to do with the tax code here that could potentially reach some of these goals yeah, one thing is to make sure that it's refundable or a uh, you know direct pay cash grant so that because a lot of people just don't have tax equity, right? So make sure that they can get paid for it. Make sure that it's eligible for community solar ownership shares. Um, make the investment tax credit for residential permanent. Right now, um, Section 48, which is for businesses, is permanent, but let's make it for residential too. Um, make sure that the benefits can be available to Puerto Rico and all U.S. territories. And then another thing is like, make sure that we can embed interconnection costs too, because that sometimes is the most expensive part of the project is making sure that you can actually connect. Um, and so making sure that the tax credit is available to interconnection too. So, Danelle, you were testifying in front of Congress this week, actually, about these issues, unrelated to this specific plan, but still talking about this framework. What were you talking about? What were they asking you about? What was the hearing? Uh, the hearing was chaired uh, by the Honorable Bobby Rush out of Chicago, um, who is the only human being on this planet who has ever defeated Barack Obama in a head-to-head -head political race, which I mentioned to him, and he he chuckled. He he. He's, he's, he's a legend for that. Um, this hearing is about equity in clean energy. There's a um, particular piece of legislation 
um, that the House, there's a subcommittee that's focusing in particular on equity, um, and they have a set of policies and a, and a package that they offered. Um, and so they asked us to make comments with me as someone from the private sector who's interested in um, serving low-income customers. Uh, were there particular improvements that I thought could be offered? So I got on my, uh, I, my shibboleth of... Uh, talking about the need for community ownership of distributed infrastructure. Um, I also spoke a little bit about the necessity of providing broadband access to low-income communities. Not only have we seen, of course, that the digital divide is a disaster during the pandemic for education, for telemedicine, for remote work, for even filing for unemployment, but we can't roll out clean infrastructure across the country without internet connectivity that's going to allow us to install and optimize the smart heat pumps and solar panels that we want to install. That's what's going to allow us to connect um, these devices to the grid um, and do the distributed energy resource um, organization and demand uh, management optimization that's going to generate additional revenue for low-income communities, but truly make our grid a smart grid. So I spoke a little bit about the need to focus on um, internet uh, broadband access as a critical infrastructure component of clean energy. What I was so impressed by were the seriousness of the witnesses to, of taking the pe- question seriously. And the, the witnesses were very thoughtful. And unfortunately, what happens in a lot of these hearings is that members decide it's their time to b- do a bunch of sound bites and to talk about whatever they want to talk about that maybe be completely non-germane to the hearing. One guy went on off on transmission, which had nothing to do with the hearing. Other people were talking about, you know, this like rush to green or this radical clean energy taking all my jobs. And it's like what you all were saying was so good and very level-headed about like, this is actually creating jobs. This is keeping costs lower. This is helping everybody. Um, And I think the one thing that came out to me on the part of the Republicans, many of whom were doing these stunts, um, was really that none of them said they didn't believe in climate change. (laughs) None of them. Um, Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I, you know, thought they were going to bring like a snowball to the hearing like Imhoff or whatever and they no one said that they don't believe in it what they said is we think this is injustice we think this is like the federal government imposing a radical democrat agenda uh that's going to harm our communities and our constituents and people are going to lose their jobs that have you know paid them a living wage for years and years and years that kind of stuff but no one disputed the central argument of climate change which i guess is progress right Absolutely. <laughs> Let's just take it. Let's take it. <laughs> All right, y'all, free electrons. Catherine, what do you got? All right, it's Earth Week, so I have a riddle for you uh, about something you'd use in your yard. What do hardwood, bark mulch, and Reese's peanut butter cups have in common? And no, Reese's is not made of mulch. Hmm. I'm totally stumped. I don't even have a good, funny response. (laughs) Well, National Grid Renewables, which is a developer, has now PPAs from NRG, Home Depot, and Hershey together. So that's where the 
chocolate and the mulch come from, for 275 megawatts of solar plus storage in Texas. And Hershey is even developing more solar in North Carolina. So these corporations are coming around and it's tasting sweet. <laughs> I actually inadvertently had a punny response when I said I'm stumped to the mulch question. Oh. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Danelle, what do you got? Well, um, it was really exciting to see that the United Mine Workers, a union which has been based in mining practices, particularly in Appalachia, they had a huge announcement that they were going going to do a little quid pro quo. They were going to endorse President Biden's green energy policies in exchange for commitments around job training and really retraining their union members to participate in green infrastructure economy. What's really interesting about this is um, there's almost like a Green New Deal, and people in the in Appalachia are too smart to call it that. But there's there, there's almost like a, a there, there's a massive uh, investment plan focused on the Appalachian part of America that policymakers are organizing around, and in effect, the mine workers union is saying that they will support. Uh, President Biden's national policies um, in exchange for being robust participants and having a seat at the table in this kind of green stimulus that's focused on Appalachian America. I love it. Let's do it. Drive your truck to West Virginia. <laughs> My heat pump truck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I actually think this says just as much about the failed Trump administration policies to save coal as it does about like where Biden is taking us because the coal industry thought maybe this is our last ditch chance to save some jobs and like no matter what the trump administration threw at it market conditions have made coal uh just a dismal business to be in and so they the failure of those policies is just as much of a factor here we got to get this one right and i know that president biden will this is a huge priority for him and secretary granholm i'll finish up with a story that directly relates to our international climate talks discussion, and that is Canada, which is seen as a neutral party in international climate negotiations, actually saw emissions increase since the Paris Climate Agreement was signed. It is the first or is the only G7 country to see emissions increase, and that is because of their continued exploitation of tar sands. And of course, the uh, you know the oil industry in Canada is very powerful, and there's a real political demand to continue uh, extracting oil sands. Uh, many of you know much of the crude coming down into the United States into the Midwest. So that's a big deal. <laughs> and uh, I think Canada has a lot to prove if it wants to meet its commitments under the Paris Climate Agreement. All right, that's it for the show. Danelle, so good to see you again. Thanks for making time in your busy no, week. Glad to be here. Every week is Earth Week. <laughs> Catherine, same to you. I know you both have been crunched and, and always appreciate seeing you and hearing from you. Absolutely. Wouldn't miss it. All right, thanks, everybody. Uh, we will talk to you soon. As always, hit us up on Twitter if you want to comment on what we discussed or suggest other show ideas. You can give us a rating and review anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you're not subscribing, I don't know what you're doing and how you're listening to us, but please subscribe. Thanks for being with us. We'll be with you next week. This is the Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. Talk to you soon. 